0: Just pull out those message notes and follow along. And keep your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, I'm asking this morning as I share this message that you'd help me to make it applicable to where we are at in our lives this uh, October of 2013. Uh, Thank you that we've been able to worship you thus far. I just ask that you continue to help us to worship you through your word. It is a sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. Sacrifice of joy to preach. And I just ask that you'd help me to share again. In Christ's name we pray again. Amen. I heard about this man. There was this particular fellow that was very, very stingy. He was so stingy with his money that on his deathbed, he made his wife promise him that she, that she would bury his $50,000 that he had saved in his casket. Can you believe that? She said, I, He said, I want you to promise me that you'll bury my $50,000 that I've saved in my casket. Now, she was reluctant to do this. She did not want to do this. But she said, okay, I'll do it. And so her husband died. Her husband died. And before the casket was closed on that particular morning, she put a small wooden box in the casket. And after she did this, her friend whispered over to her and she said, Surely you didn't bury the money with him in the casket. And she responded, Of course I did. I'm a Christian. And I cannot lie, I promised him that I would leave uh, the the money there with him. You mean you just buried $50,000 in a casket with your dead husband's body? And she said, yes, I did. I wrote a check. I wrote a check. (laughs) Isn't it true isn't it true? We know people, there are people that try to get around things. Isn't that true? There are people that try to get around things. Seriously, they try to get around things. And, uh, and they work, they work at shortcuts and they work at trying to figure out how they're going to uh, take these shortcuts and how they're going to do these things that may be outside of the law but may be still just a little bit gray, they think to themselves, whatever it may be. I want you to know that uh, there are always consequences. There are always consequences to the things that we do. Uh, the Bible says, what we sow, we reap. And there are always consequences. We can be forgiven of any sin, and we are forgiven of any sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and, 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 and he will cleanse our hearts of all unrighteousness. We can be forgiven of every sin, but that does not mean that we don't uh, reap what we sow. It happens in the physical world and it happens in the spiritual life, unfortunately, and this is true. And this is why often when a person comes to know Jesus Christ, I often say to them, right away, you want to begin to sow good seeds because, unfortunately, for a while, you're going to be reaping some of those bad seeds that you've sown in your life. But continue to sow faithfully and watch God work and bless your life. But there is a sowing and there is a reaping. We... Last week looked at the particular passage of scripture where Nathan the prophet finally comes and confronts David. David had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He had this out of wedlock child. Eventually he had her husband Uriah murdered. They got married and then uh, she had this child. The prophet comes to him and confronts him and says in my paraphrase, after a parable, he told this beautiful parable about this little lamb that was more like a like a pet, excuse me more like a child than a pet, and how a crooked person came along and killed that and slew that particular pet of this man, this poor man, and all of a sudden, David set forward as he was listening to Nathan the prophet tell the story, and David got incensed, he got upset, he got angry, and Nathan the prophet said. You are the man. You're the man. And then Nathan the prophet says, after David basically repents and says, I have sinned before God, Nathan the prophet says, here are some things that are going to happen to you as a result of the seeds that you've sown. Because you committed adultery and because you had Uriah uh, Bathsheba's husband murdered, you're going to reap several different uh, things You're going to re- reap these particular results. And we're going to be talking about some of those things, and then we're going to be talking about what David did in the midst of all that, uh, all those trials and difficulties. A couple years ago, um, Barry Bonds, we recognize that name, Barry Bonds broke the Hank Aaron's record for the most home runs in a single season. Barry Bonds played most of his career with the San Francisco Giants. He was a tremendous athlete, but he began to hit home runs at a record rate. And in the aftermath of all this, people began to whisper, and it came out, that perhaps he was using performance-enhancing drugs, or what we call steroids. And he lied before a grand jury. He lied and said that he did not use these things, and then all of a sudden they they brought him with charges and they said, you've lied to us. Other Major League Baseball players have admitted to doing this, uh, but you're we believe that you've lied. And so they've had this ongoing trial for a number of years, and he's been able to evade through all these different maneuvers that he's made. But it came out. It came out in his trial that Barry Bonds... uh He His uh, own trainer, personal trainer, has said that he gave performance-enhancing drugs to other major league baseball players like Jason Giambi, et cetera, et cetera, but he did not give them, his personal trainer did not give them to Barry Bonds. Um, The manager for the uh, New York, uh, excuse me, for the San Francisco Giants said that Barry Bonds, during this particular time, he had to have a larger baseball cap size, and that's usually indicative of a person using Uh, performance-enhancing drugs. His his, uh, mistress, Kimberly Bell, said that Barry Bonds told her specifically that he used these performance-enhancing drugs, and he said that his mistress is a liar. Now, I say all that to say that Barry Bonds has been coming across, quite frankly, as a very egotistical, self-centered person, a womanizer, who really doesn't care about the reputation of baseball and who cares more about his own reputation. I believe that eventually, one way or another, it's going to come out. He's going to be found guilty that he is, uh, uh, he has been using this and he's lied to the grand jury. The point I'm trying to make is, is that whether you are a baseball player, a football player, a Hollywood movie star, or an average Joe, The Bible indicates that whatever we sow, we eventually reap. And I want you to notice a scripture found in Hosea. Hosea, notice Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. And this is what Hosea writes. And listen to this. This is absolutely profound. They who sow to the wind reap the whirlwind. They who sow to the wind will reap whirlwind the whirlwind. And we believe that Scripture indicates in Galatians that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap to the flesh. And if we sow to the Spirit, if we sow love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, that we will have that kind of reaping in our life. It doesn't mean that good things cannot happen to committed Christian individuals, but it just seems that there is an association, there's a cause and effect And when we sow bad things and do bad things, that we reap those things. And when we sow good seeds, we reap those things. And this is what Scripture indicates, especially this passage of Scripture. Now, King David has led the children of Israel to national prominence. They are the leading nation even above Egypt at this particular time. He has slain all of their enemies, including the hated Philistines. He has led in this economic revival. He has led in this spiritual revival. And he is at the peak of his adulation. He's at the peak of his popularity, you might want to say, when all of a sudden he sees this beautiful young lady, as we've been saying, and he he has lust in his heart for her, and he seduces her, and they have a child out of wedlock together, and he murders her, and Nathan the prophet, after a year, comes before David, and he confronts him with his story, and he says, you are the man. You're the man. And David says, yes, I have sinned. I have sinned before the Lord. And in that passage of Scripture that Pastor Brad got to reading, we read that in David's future... And in the immediate, he reaps a number of things. First of all, he reaps he's going to reap marital infidelity. Someone very, very close to him will come along and try to usurp the throne. And as a result of his usurping of the throne, he will plant a tent on top of the palace area. And intentionally, Absalom will sleep with every single one of David's wives and concubines. David sold infidelity and adultery. Now it's going to be committed against him. And then on top of this, this one son that I just referred to, Absalom, he is going to boot David off the throne for a period of time, and he's going to do all these things, trying to kill his father, etc., etc. And in the most pathetic and in the most grievous parental scene in in the Old Testament, after Absalom does all these things, and after the commander of David's army slays, Absalom cuts his head off, and he finds out about it. David cries and weeps, and he says out loud, "Oh my son, oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would have died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. David is reaping the whirlwind. He's a beaten man. He's strung out. He's sobbing. Every crutch has been removed at this particular time. And later on, he's at the bitter end. He's broken, bruised, and he's twisted, and he's confused. And you see, David finally confesses. He does confess. And he says, Lord, forgive me. I confess. In my paraphrase, we read it in that particular passage of Scripture. He says, I've done all of these things. I've come clean before you. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. By the statement that he made, he comes clean before God. I've done all of these things. Forgive me, God. Cleanse my heart. And God forgives him. He forgives him. And he heals his soul. His relationship with God is restored, you might want to say. But unfortunately, David still has to reap the consequences of his choices. Now, Pastor Ron, you might say, You know, I'm not there. I don't have any gross immorality in my life, but I've got friends and relatives that do. I've got a spouse that's involved in this or whatever it may be, or this has happened in the past or whatever. Or maybe it's going to, you know, I I am involved in this. What do we do when we begin to reap what we've sown? I'm a new Christian, but I had this lifestyle for years, and I've unfortunately reaped it. I'm reaping it. Or, what do we do when we get caught in the backwash of what other people do to us? You understand the backwash? In other words, a spouse or a friend or relative of ours, and they begin to make these bad decisions, and they make bad choices, and it affects our family, it affects our spouse, whatever it may be, and, and we begin to reap the whirlwind of a family member or a friend, what they've sown. Years ago, one lady came to me, a committed Christian lady, and she was beside herself. She said, in my paraphrase, my husband has been so stupid, and, and, and I can't believe it. He's always, he's always been involved in alcohol, but now he's using it on a regular basis, and not only that, but he's got involved in drugs, and he's becoming a heavy user of drugs, and he's making bad decisions, and he's making bad financial decisions, and we're ready to declare bankruptcy here because of the bad decisions that he's made. And my children, they don't want anything to do with him. Because he's angry and he's mean and he's involved with drugs and alcohol all the time, he's created a terrible toll. How do you? This is what she asked me. How do you ride out the storm caused by another and you're not responsible? You, how do you ride out the storm and you're not responsible? You're caught in the backwash. In other words, whether listen, whether or not you caused it or somebody else has caused it, what do you do when you're reaping a whirlwind? Well, in this particular story, especially after David suffered perhaps the greatest loss, it was an immediate loss. Those other three I talked about was in the future. But after David found out about these losses, and especially this immediate loss, he does a number of things that are very, very important when you find yourself in what I've just described in those particular situations. When we are caught... In the whirlwind. In the whirlwind. In the aftermath, or the other decisions that people have made, or the decisions that we've made. And I want you to notice David's first response here. He found out that his baby was sick. His baby was sick. Little innocent baby. And notice what he does in verses 15 and 16. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child, allowed the child to get sick, that Uriah's wife had borne to David, Bathsheba. And he became ill. And notice what David did. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. I want you to notice David's very first response, and I think this is very, very important. The Bible says that he sought the Lord in prayer and fasting. He sought the Lord in prayer and fasting. Uh, The the child of David and Bathsheba became very, very sick. This is exactly what Nathan the prophet prophesied in verse 14. But because of you doing this, You have made enemies of the Lord and show utter contempt. Notice, the son born to you will die. It's a prophetic word that came through the prophet. You're reaping the whirlwind. That innocent baby is going to die. And David, when he heard that and when he experienced that, he began to seek the Lord in prayer and in fasting. The baby is sick, a little innocent child. Now, If I can just be direct and if I can be blunt at this particular moment. Sometimes, myself included, we know very little about this kind of protracted prayer. It's called intercessory prayer. Very little about this protracted prayer. When we find ourselves in a position of our causing or someone else's cause to us are when we find ourselves in a difficult place, a different uh, trial, whatever it may be, where there is an extended period of fasting and prayer, where we do without food totally or just almost totally, and we drink water. For seven days, not one, not two, but for seven days, the Bible says that David basically lay prostrate on his face, pleading with God, interceding in prayer on behalf of this child. You say, what was he doing, Pastor Ron? Well, I just got through saying it. He was asking for God's mercy to be bestowed upon that little baby because I'm sure it doesn't say, but I'm sure he's saying, Lord, why don't you take me? Don't allow this punishment to go upon this baby. This baby is innocent. Let it happen to me, not the baby. And he's asking for God's grace, God's healing grace, to be upon this little innocent baby. And it went on for seven days. Now, I, I also see here that he is grieving over the choices that he has made. And while we can be forgiven instantaneously, unfortunately, as I've been saying, what we sow, we do reap. And I hear in his prayers here, although it doesn't say explicitly, he's asking, he's begging, even though God has forgiven him, he's still begging to be forgiven. David responded when he felt the hot winds of judgment, and he and he felt the hand of judgment upon his little baby, he fell before the Lord on the ground all night and all the next day. And for seven days straight, he fasted. He waited on the Lord. He sought his mind. And he asked again on behalf of his child that he would be healed. And he made no demands. He didn't. He he just pled, you might want to say, with God for the life of his baby. Could you spare my baby's life? Could you heal this baby? I'll accept what you send me, but could you restore the health of this child? This is the whole context here over and over again for seven full days. When you are in the backwash or when you are experiencing this, there is nothing wrong with seeking the Lord and there's nothing wrong with laying prostrate before God and as the Lord leads you and perhaps there may be extended periods of time of prayer and fasting. In other words, David prayed with a humble and contrite heart. Uh, Notice, he did not leave his house. He did not surround himself with people. He didn't go to a place of worship. He secluded himself, and in the seclusion, in his house, on his face, he was seeking God. Let me say this. When you go through a whirlwind, whatever the cost, when you're going through this whirlwind, it's important to be quiet. To be quiet. And to seek the Lord. And perhaps you might want to add fasting. prayer, and fasting. David's second response is, is that he realistically acknowledges the consequences. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Ron? He realistically acknowledges the consequences. In other words, He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't blame God. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't blame Nathan. He accepted the responsibility for the decisions and choices that we make. You see, sometimes we're not willing to accept the responsibility of the choices and decisions we make. We like to blame other people. Well, if I had known this, I had known... No, no. He didn't do any of that. He said, in my paraphrase, I did this. I'm responsible for this, I've sinned against God, and I'm reaping the whirlwind. I want you to look at uh, verse 18 with me. On the seventh day, the child died. And David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? he may do something desperate. Another translation says, how can we tell him that the child is dead, since he may do harm to himself? Uh, David's servants were afraid to come to him with, a, with the information that the child had died because they were afraid that he was going to commit suicide. They were afraid that he was going to take his own life. I mean, anybody that prays for seven days in a row, Fast takes no food, very little water, and is is is, is interceding that person must be in a, in a desperate emotional state. this is their thinking, this is their reasoning, this is their logic they don 't know the Lord like David knows the lord unfortunately they didn 't understand when we laid his final weight on him they said he 's going to crack up and and he he 's going to kill himself but but I want you to look at david 's realistic um, Rational response is a far cry from suicidal thoughts. Look at verses 19 and 20. David noticed that the servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. He saw them over there whispering. He can put two and two together, and they said, Yes, yes, the baby, the baby's dead. He's dead. Notice what David does. He gets up from the ground after he had washed. He puts on lotions and changes his clothes. He went to the house and worshiped the Lord. And then he went to his own house. And at his request, they served him food and he ate. What else? What else can you do? He's realistic. The baby's dead. I can't do anything else about this. He's dead. While he was alive, I fasted and I prayed and I sought the Lord and I asked the Lord to restore the health of this child. But now that he's dead, I can't do anything else. He is very realistic. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean he, he doesn't grieve. He doesn't still cry. It doesn't mean that he doesn't feel the loss. It doesn't mean any of that. But he was realistic. I can't do anything about this at this time. David had been waiting on the Lord, so to speak, inquiring of God for seven days, wondering if God might change his mind and spare this child, abandoning himself in this total seclusion. Now he hears the words, the child is dead. And what was his response? One more time. He gets up quietly. He takes a bath. He changes his clothes. He puts on this lotion and he goes to the house of the Lord and it says he worships. While the child was alive, he was fasting and he was praying and now that the child is dead he gets up and he does all of these things that seem so abnormal to his servants and he goes to the house of the lord and he worships now when i read that i thought about the story of Job and we're all familiar with the story of Job. but he lost his children in an earthquake all of those kids i think there was nine children he lost his wealth he lost all of his livestock he was a wealthy man and he lost his health, and he's sitting on that dung heap with boils all over his body, and he's got shards of clay scraping the pus away, and, 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 and all of these things. And his wife comes to, sit, comes to him and says, you might as well curse God and die. And Job says, should we accept goodness from God and not accept adversity? In other words, it was a realistic, rational response. Job, David, they don't play the blame game. It's no one else's fault. I'm not going to blame God. I'm not angry at God. I'm not going to curse God. I'm not going to say this and this and whatever it may be. He's realistic. It doesn't mean he's not grieving. And he still won't grieve. Listen. When we face the consequences... The backwash of another person's sin. Or we face the consequences of the things that we've sown. We just have to guard against bitterness. You just have to guard against bitterness. Due to the pain that comes your way. You've already confessed your sins. And, and, and if you ask God to forgive you, and God gives you grace, and God forgives you instantaneously, you're forgiven of the, those sins. But thoughts, often because... They've hit me, and they've hit you. Thoughts thoughts will invade your mind, like, how could you do this to me, Lord? I've served you this many years. I've humbly confessed my sins, and now look at what you've taken away from me. There's none of this in David's response. Instead, he immediately accepts what happened realistically, and then he worships the Lord. No giving into bitterness, no blaming God, no cursing God, none of that. And and I want you to notice the third thing that I see here in this particular passage of Scripture. He, He stood on the promises of Scripture and he kept persevering. He continued to persevere. If you ever want to get in the Word of God, you should do so, especially before and during and after a crisis. Because because we are often irrational, because we're emotional creatures, and we need the promises of God. We need to understand and we need to realize what God says about us and about our condition and about the fact that he's got a future and a hope for us and he's got, he's got good plans for us and not evil plans. We need at that particular time to stand on the promises of God and to continue to persevere. We need the wisdom of Scripture. David settled his case with God as he rested on the truth of God's Word. You say, what are you talking about? Let me show you. David's servants could not understand David's response and his reactions. Others are amazed when our responses, quote, aren't aren't normal like our culture and our world. They expect us to fall apart. They expect us to well, to lose it to take drugs, to take alcohol to cope, to numb the pain. Again, look at David's servant's reactions in verse 21. One more time. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but when the child died, you rose and you ate food. David tells him in, in verses 22 and 23, look at it with me. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me. As long as there's a one breath left, as long as a person is breathing, there's still hope. We still hope, and we ask God to restore, and we ask God to heal. As long as there's one breath left, we do that. But the moment that they stop breathing, notice what he says. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now... But now he has died. How many people, (laughs) this is a rhetorical question, but how many people do we know that will continue to fast after a loved one's dead? Does that sound funny? And yet, We do see examples of this. Fast after a loved one's dead. Make plans to contact a medium trying to communicate with the dead. David says, He's dead. I can no longer hold him, touch him, kiss on him. He's gone. He's dead. There's nothing wrong with grieving. And we all ask those why questions. But a child of God faces reality. They grieve. They weep. And they say, it's permanent. They're dead. They're dead. I cannot bring them back. Look at how David puts it in verse 23. Can I bring him back again? Can I bring this baby back again? What does he say? He answers his question. No, but I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. He's standing. Did you hear that? He's standing on the promise of God that there is eternal life. He's standing on that promise. I shall go to him, but he cannot come back to me. David said, while the child lived, we were together. Again, I could love on him. I could cuddle with him. But now that he's gone, I cannot bring him back. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the context The Bible says that later, you read it, Pastor Brad read it, that later, afterward, they grieved, they wept, he and Bathsheba both. And they had relations, and she got pregnant again, and they had another child, Solomon. They persevered, who would become the wisest man who ever lived. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.